Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, Pastor Josh continues his series in the book of Romans. In this sermon, we are shown as believers that the Holy Spirit is working in our lives to help us comprehend God's love for us. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5 as Pastor Josh delivers his message titled, The Hope and Privilege of the Believer. So Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, please read along with me, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we've obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, But we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance, proven character and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. And the while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, maybe one of the worst effects of the fall is that we have this wicked tendency to see things of the earth as infinitely glorious and then to see the things that really are of great and eternal value and to be bored with them. And God, we ask that you work a changing of what we behold and what we value and what we love. Father, that we see the greatness of what it is that you have done for us in Christ and that we in turn become bored with money and wealth and houses and the things that will burn of this earth. Father, show us your glory God, we pray, show us the greatness of what you have accomplished in Christ for all who come to you in faith in his name. Father, please protect this time. We know our enemy wants nothing more than to somehow cause the work of the word not to happen, whether that come through our minds being distracted or some kind of distraction happening in the service or for me to be distracting by what I say and I just ask God for the glory of your name so that we all see who you are, so that we're formed and grown and changed and we come to behold your greatness. Please, God, work in such a way that the the truths you have shown to us in your word, we come to see, behold, heed, love, and be changed by. God, your sons and daughters that have come to you by faith, I ask, O Lord, 
bring about transformation through the truths that are here. Any in the room that have not responded to Christ, not turned to be saved, God, I pray that you bring that about in this time, accomplish your work for your eternal purposes. And Lord, we pray, give us mercy. Send us your spirit to shed light on your word, O God. We ask these things through the name of Christ. Amen. One of the beautiful love stories recorded for us in scripture is that of Jacob and Rachel. In those days, um, a dowry was a common practice that a man looking to marry a woman would pay the father for the privilege of getting to marry his daughter. Now, the Bible never prescribes or commends the practice. You can interpret it in various ways. Bible just tells us that it was a reality. It was a cultural reality for a season of time. Jacob came to a man named Laban. He had a daughter named Rachel. Jacob was immediately smitten with this young woman and she with him. He then knew her for some time. He worked for her father. And one day Laban approached Jacob and said, you're staying with us. You want to work for me? You want to enter into something? And this is when Jacob saw his opportunity and he proposed a, proposed a payment for a dowry that surely was unheard of. He said to Laban, I'll serve you. And notice what he means when he said, I'll serve you. This means that he would become like a servant, not receiving wages, he would not have compensation by the work that he gave. He would simply be a, a servant living in the home, oftentimes sleeping in the fields, caring for the flocks of Laban. He said, I'll serve you seven years for the privilege of getting to marry your daughter. And then one of my wife's favorite verses from the Bible, a statement in Genesis 29, it says, And Jacob served Laban's, Laban seven years, and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. How do you measure the intensity of love? How do you measure the magnitude, the holiness, the purity, the greatness? How do you comprehend its degree? The measure of love is the willingness of the lover to sacrifice for the beloved. The magnitude of love is demonstrated by how much the lover is willing to give, by what links, what sacrifices the lover is willing to make for the beloved. This is why Jesus said, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. This is why husbands tell their wives, I would die for you. I have no doubt that you parents in the room, if it came down to it and your children needed a lung transplant and you convinced a doctor to do it, you would be willing to give your life for the good of your children. But would we be willing to do that for a man on death row? Would we be willing to trade our life for someone unworthy, unrighteous, ungodly. The magnitude of God's love is made evident in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The story of the gospel in the Bible is not the story of Jesus coming to die for good people. 
It's not the story of uh, Jesus coming to uh, those who are worthy and have intrinsic kind of value that they deserve eternal life. And so he came to give us what we deserve. The story of the gospel is the story of the hero coming to save the lives and souls of the enemies. The story of the gospel is the story of the son of God coming to those who are unworthy, unfit, unclean, undeserving. But God demonstrating the magnitude of his mercy, his grace in Christ dying for the ungodly. Jesus didn't come to die for the good people. There are none before God. But God set his love on a people he chose, even in eternity past. Out of that love, the Son of God came and died, and out of that love, the Holy Spirit of God then comes to those and draws us to salvation. And then in the lives of Christians, those who have turned to Christ, the Holy Spirit is now actively doing a work to bring us to know and comprehend that love. And herein is the central idea of this passage. The rest of the time we spend is just going to be unpacking and trying to go deeper in what we say right here. But here's, here's the main message. The justified Christian has been gloriously loved by God with a love that's greater than all romantic loves. N no love of a parent has ever matched it. There's no human love that has ever come close to the magnitude of God's love for his people. That is an objective reality in Christ. You Christian are gloriously loved. That's one part, but then here's the next. God has sent his spirit into our hearts and the Holy Spirit is now actively working to bring us to comprehend that love. Bringing us to experience it. Bringing us to understand it. Bringing us to, to know it, to feel it, be moved by it so that there is a transforming effect that happens in us when we know that we are loved by God. That's, that's the main message here. We've been working through this passage here, you know, in the uh, overall book of Romans, there's this logical argument being laid out and we've been seeing in chapter five here, the, the benefits, the blessings, the results of justification. If you've not been with us as we've been working through this passage, we're so glad that you're here. Uh, you come kind of in the midst of some things. We've been seeing what this word justification means in the Bible. Justification is the word that God uses to describe that, that moment when a sinner is made right with God. That moment of crossing, crossing from death to life, crossing from not right with God to suddenly I am right with God. What, what is that? That's justification. And we've seen that we receive that by faith through Christ and the work that he has done. Chapter five here has been showing us here is what the justified Christian has. Here are benefits. And we've noted that there are 10 of them here. We're ready for the fifth one today that we Christian, we are specially loved by God. Let's try to walk through this and go as deep as we can in understanding this. 
So the whole book of Romans is making a logical argument. We've seen here in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, that there is another argument, smaller argument, underneath that bigger argument. And then even within verses 1 through 11, there are a few even smaller arguments in there, like Verses three through five is a smaller way that God's reasoning with you. And he's saying, here, let me, let me prove something to you. Let me show you something. And here's how it went in, in verses three through five. So last week we saw the justified Christian can result, excuse me, exult. We can rejoice even in our afflictions. Well, why? Well, Christian, whenever you go through afflictions, it causes you to grow in perseverance, and when you grow in perseverance, when you endure through a trial, that proves your faith. You have a, a provenness about your faith. When you have that provenness to your faith, this increases your hope. Verse 5 then brings uh, uh, the conclusion to that little reasoning, that little logical argument that God's laying out there. There are two statements in there. The first one is this. Hope does not disappoint. Christian, your hope in Christ, another way of saying it is, it's not going to put you to shame. It's not going to disappoint you. You're not going to come to the last day and find that it wasn't real or that God doesn't come through for you. You're not going to be disappointed. The whole reason why it is solid hope is because in the end, it's yours. It's kind of answering this question. Does this, does this question ever cross your mind? Is this really going to be worth it? By the way, I'd say that if you've never even considered that question, are you really putting yourself like chips all the way in the table to like really die to self? If you're vocal about your faith as God calls us to and you're seen as an idiot, if you go through afflictions and trials and even more so than unbelievers, the Bible says, and if you obey in the way that God calls us to die to self, like there are times where obedience, doing the right thing feels like a knife is in you and there's a part of you that is dying. Things that we love so dearly feels like they're just being ripped out of us, out of our flesh. That question sometimes comes in, is this really going to be worth it? Is obedience, is sacrifice, is martyrdom, is it really going to be worth it? Verse 5 is saying, your hope is not going to disappoint you. In the end, God is going, he's going to come through for you and he says it's good, so it's going to be good. So that's the first statement. And then here's the second, it's the one we're spending our most time on here. There's a little bit of a tricky point that's made here, but it's a point that's made actually at least three times in this text. The point is this, you can be sure that what you have been promised, that the, the hope that God has given you, you're going to finally get. You can be sure of it and here's how. God has done things in the past and is currently doing things even right now that is sort of, sort of God saying, look, I'll prove to you I'm going to do it in, in, in the future because let me show you this right now. 
it's the same point that's made in verse 10. Let me, let me see if I can make it clear there. Look, look at verse 10 and look at the reasoning that's there. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Do, do you see kind of the point that's being made there? If a Christian says, I'm just worried that when I get all the way to the end there, God is going to be so disgusted with me because I just, I just keep sinning. I just keep falling. He may just decide he's just not going to bring me in. Here's how you can know that's not going to happen. Here's a few ways. God has done things in the past that are harder than what it's going to be to save you in the future. Jesus died the precious beloved son of God died for you when you were ungodly. He ain't dead anymore. He's alive. What he is, has done and what he is doing is God showing you he's going to finish what he started. He's going to bring you to the end. If while we were enemies, God reconciled us. Well, now that we are reconciled and we are sons and daughters of God, we are friends of God. He's not going to turn you away at the end. That's sort of the logic here. And that kind of reasoning is used about three times in this passage. So verse five is saying that there's another present tense action, a work that God is doing, that he is working to give you assurance. And here's the work. The Holy Spirit has come to you and he is doing this. He is pouring out God's love for you in your hearts. Do you notice as you read this passage, it's hard to catch in just one reading through, but did you notice the very interesting use of verb tenses all throughout verses one through 11? For word geeks like me, oh, we love this, okay? Like that God is, God is saying various things here, but here's, here's kind of the summarization of it. There's past, present, and future, and there's even more because Greek has these weird verb tenses of things that happened in the past, but then they continue to have effect currently and then into the future. So you got all kinds of verb tense things going on, and it's this. You can be sure that in the future, you will have these things promised because in the past, God accomplished things, and in the present, God is still demonstrating certain things. In verse eight, do you see the present tense use of he is currently demonstrating his love still in this? That's, that's, that's part of what's going on here. And there's some cool stuff here. Let's, let's try to unpack and understand what is being said, that God is right now pouring out his love in the hearts of his people. So you see, we got a couple sub points here. Let's first by, to understand what it means for God to love the Christian. Let's ask this question of the text. Someone could say, well, pastor, if we're talking about God's love for justified Christians, why is that special? Doesn't God love everyone? Well, here's the quick answer. And then we're going to try to pull out more. Do you love your neighbors who live around you? Hope you answer yes, because Jesus says to. In fact, he tells you to love you more than just your neighbors that you like. He tells you to love your enemies as well. But do you love your neighbors who live around you? Okay, yes. But do you love them in the same way and to the same degree that you love your kids and your spouse? 
Okay, so we see that there are different ways of loving. There are different intensities with which we love, and that's not unrighteous. That's a, that's a, that's a, a right thing. But there's quite a bit more here when it comes to understanding the love that God has for people D.A. Carson wrote a, a helpful little book called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. You may check out sometime. But there are actually some things that the Bible shows us about God's love that is unsettling to many. You ever notice how people can get upset a lot of times when they find out the Bible says truths that they didn't think it said or doesn't say what they want it to say or what they heard Bob at work say? When we see what God actually says, it does unsettle a lot of people. So we start with, yes, God has a general love and care for the creatures that he's made in his image. Bible says God has a general love and care that he has even for the animals. The Psalms mention uh, God making provision for the woodland creatures and that he's the one who feeds the squirrels in the woods and such. But towards humans made in his image, Jesus reasoned in Luke 6 there, that God has obviously a greater love for his people made in his image than he does for the animals. We have been created higher than them with more dignity and scripture shows a general love. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now, yes, we know that whenever God sent his son into the world, Jesus did come specifically to die for a group of people. But the Bible is also showing that God has given a general invitation to all of the world that they can come and be saved. And he has done this out of love. In the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus is telling us to love our enemies, here's what he follows that up with. So that you may be sons of your father in heaven, for he shows kindness and mercy to his enemies. God has a love and care that he gives even to his enemies. And so we are acting like him. We are imitating him when we do the same. In Ezekiel, we're told that God does not take delight in the death of the wicked but rather desires for all to repent and be saved. So there's a general love and care that God has for all, but we, we gotta see that there's more to that. Different generations have their own temptations. Our generation right now is really hung up on some misunderstandings of God's love. There's a lot more too than just saying God loves everybody. When somebody says that God loves everybody the same, that's error. When somebody says that God loves everyone unconditionally, that's error. Before you hurl your stones, at least hear what scripture says. Psalm 5, 5, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. Psalm eleven five: the Lord tests the righteous and the wicked and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Did you know that God hates? And who does he hate? All who do iniquity. And we see the Bible describe why. In Adam, we have all walked away from the love of God and from the offer of covenant love, eternal love that he's made. And just kind of like a a woman who is proposed to, 
And she has the opportunity to come into a, a, a love relationship as husband and wife, and she says no to him. Well, then she has walked away from that. The man who proposed might have a general care, but not a special kind of romantic love of marriage. The Bible says that we have all walked away from him. But we have two truths here together that we got to understand. God has a general love and care for all, but God also has hatred for all who do iniquity. Yes, those two things can exist in God at the exact same time. So when the Bible talks about God's love for his people, there's something more intense being said here than just a generic throwing out there of God's love. Listen to me very closely. God's love for his people is a ferociously faithful, covenant-keeping, promise-making, unending, eternal love based on the blood of his beloved son. God has taken oaths on the integrity of his own name and he sealed it with the blood of his precious son. Oaths that the eternal, unchanging God will not break. To be loved by God in Christ is to have a ferociously faithful, loving kindness set on you. And the living God says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'll never abandon you. And I'll never stop loving you. I'll never stop pursuing you. And I'll never stop working for your good. That is very different than just a generic kind of throwing of God's love out there. When God promises love to his people, friends, he is promising something big and he is promising something eternal, which is why the belief that you can lose your salvation, you know, several times in this passage, we've, we've exposed that to, to say that this is clearly in contradiction to the scripture, but that belief that you could somehow be saved and loved by God, but then if you're bad and tick God off, then you could be unloved by God. Those who teach that, they're not doing it on purpose, but they are making a, an attack on the very character of God. To understand God's love helps us understand God himself. Now we very often say, you gotta understand more than his love. You gotta understand his holiness, his justice, his wrath. But as First John says, God is love. We have to understand his love to understand who he is. The love that God has for his people. Let me give you six characteristics of it. See in your bulletin there. This is not an exhaustive list, but as we talk about the love of God for the justified Christian, here, here are six things that we gotta know in order to understand what that is. So here's number one. God's love for his people, God's love for us in Christ, is a covenant love. Ephesians 5 tells us that this is why marriage was created. God had multiple reasons for why he made it, and some of it is our enjoyment. But we gotta understand that there are some eternal truths that God intended marriage to preach. There are ways that the existence of right and godly marriage preaches sermons to the world about things that will still be true even when marriage is no longer a part of the human experience. God intended marriage to preach, of course, 
the gospel, what he's always pointing to, what he's always showing all things find their end in as a husband and wife join together in the covenant of marriage where oaths are taken, promises are made. There is commitment to one another, faithfulness to one another. All of this was meant by God to help us understand the greatness of the gospel. Listen, a random man on the street does not have obligations to a random woman on the street, but a man in covenant with his wife has obligations responsibilities, protections, services, cares, provisions, and love that he has promised to his wife. And listen, part of the very essence of the marriage covenant, of that relationship, is the husband saying to his wife, I will love you. You will be my beloved. I will delight in you. You will be precious to me. And even when a wife is difficult, the husband does not give up. And in a sinful earth, the wife, vice versa, to the husband as well. But the husband does not stop loving his wife when there is tension and difficulty because by the integrity of his own name, he has sworn to always pursue her. That's the way God intended it. Now, we see the way that sinful man and the world has jacked that message up. But whenever Christians live out godly, faithful, tenacious marriage, we are preaching sermons about the gospel to the world. We are modeling things of the character of our God. That that, Listen, a marriage is not to be based on the whims of emotions. God wants there to be passionate emotion, but not based on fickle emotions, but based on joyful, faithful covenant promises. Listen, when God loves us in Christ, he doesn't love us as a random stranger on the street. We are brought into the new covenant. We are brought into the protection of, of his covenant, and there are promises of continuation. Listen, we all know that when a boyfriend-girlfriend situation is happening there and the the man refuses to marry the girl, and he just says, hey, why don't we just live together? Let's not get married. Let's just live together. We all know what's going on there. He's leaving the back door open so that he can slip out of commitment, whatever it pleases him. He wants the sex benefits, but without giving her what she most desires, commitment, loyalty, the promise that I'll still love you 50 years from now and I am pledging that you will be precious to me. And listen, no matter how much Hollywood tries to pretend and try to create a fantasy world where that's not actually the desire, that is reality. God doesn't leave us like that. God loves us with a covenant love. Number two, God's love for his people in Christ is an unconditional love. First Corinthians 13 
describes agape love that we are called to show to others and we're shown that we model this after God's holy love and it's described as a love without conditions that once we enter into a love relationship, once we choose to love someone in this way, we commit to it and it is not based on their loveliness. It's not based on their worth. We got to be so careful whenever we explain this. We said a moment ago that God does not love everyone unconditionally in this way, meaning those who reject God, those who reject salvation, they oftentimes make themselves feel better when, when they're posed with the gospel. They'll say something like, look, you know, in the end, I know God loves me unconditionally. So it doesn't matter what I do. He's going to give me heaven because he loves me unconditionally. That's not what the Bible says. And then, of course, you get all the stupid line of country songs down through history, essentially saying I could commit mass murder, but hey, Jesus and mama will always love me. It's ignorant. We all know it's not true. The Bible very clearly explains it's not true. We have walked out on God. Listen, God gives an invitation to enter into his covenant love. But if we reject that, we're not in that covenant love. Just as if a man proposes to a woman and she says no, they're not in covenant. She said no. He might have a general care for her, but not the covenant love. God invites you into his covenant love. You can come into that even where you sit right now before you walk out these doors but you got to respond to him in the affirmative way, which the Bible says is to turn and trust in Christ. But for God's people, bought with the blood of Christ, we're legally cleansed now and got the promise that one day we'll be cleansed. He chooses to love us unconditionally, meaning it's not based on a condition in you. It's not based on whether or not you are lovely. God does not love you because you're attractive. God does not love you because you have a good heart. God does not love you because you're better than other people. God does not love you because you are wiser than everybody else and you chose to be saved. No, the Bible says that was God's idea. He came to you and drew you to himself. God did not look down through the tunnels of time, see a picture of you and go, whoa. His love is entirely based on the glory of his love and not the loveliness or worth in us. And by the way, we are called to imitate this in love in the same ways. Friends, you and I were ungodly when God came to us. We were unfit, unclean, and if holiness is what matters to God, then we were completely unattractive to him. God was not drawn to you like a, a, a man might be drawn to a woman romantically. God was not drawn to us. God chose to love us based on no conditions in us. Our story is the story of the power of God the glory of his grace and his power is at work in us now to make us lovely. Oh, we will one day be lovely to God. He has begun that work in the heart of every justified Christian and he's going to bring it to its completion. 
but he loves us now in spite of our conditions. Number three, God's love for us in Christ is a faithful love. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, if we are faithless, we Christians in those seasons, when we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Do you see how it's always based in him? It's always based in his glory, his sovereignty. You know, you've maybe seen parents with difficult children come to a place where they kind of just give up. They kind of just wash their hands. I'm done. I'm going to stop trying sort of thing. We're just going to exist with this rebellious individual living in the house. We'll just try to avoid each other at other ends of the house, but I'm done. That is not God's approach with you. That is not God's approach with the Christian. God's approach is essentially to say, I don't care how difficult you get. I'm not going to stop. I don't care how grumpy and resistant you get in seasons. I'm not going to stop loving you. I'm not going to stop pursuing you. By golly, I'm going to make you holier than you are right now. And you will one day thank me for it because one day you'll see that your holiness is your everlasting happiness. I'm not going to stop. I'm going to keep working for your good because I am committed to your joy. I will not stop loving you because I have chosen to love you. Friends, this is, this is why adoption is such a beautiful picture of the gospel. You know, in adoption, there's a, there's a choosing to set love on. And oftentimes when kids have been adopted, their early years had such a, a traumatic kind of thing that oftentimes when those children come to live in a new home, they aren't exactly delightful. There's rebellion. There's difficulty because of some things that have gone on there. And sometimes people consider adoption and they think, I don't want to have to deal with the difficulty of a rebellious child. Aren't you glad God didn't say that about you and I? We never would have entered the kingdom. Adoption pictures the gospel in a beautiful way that in spite of us, God has set his love on us. There's the commitment. I'm going to bring you into your everlasting good. Number four, God's love for us in Christ is a sovereign love. The Bible explains that even before the world's foundations were laid, when all that lived were the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Father designed a plan and designed you, Christian, in his mind. When you were only a thought in the Father's mind, he set his love on you. He chose to love you and that language, you hear me use the word set several times now. That's, that's biblical language. That God has not fallen for you. He has chosen to set his love on you. Listen to this in Deuteronomy chapter 7. If you want to turn there with me, you can, but I'm just going to read it quickly. Deuteronomy 7, starting in verse 6. This is God speaking to the nation of Israel entering into the covenant, which... The Bible says the promises of God are yes in Christ. And so this is a metaphor and picture of future love that God would have for those in Christ. Verse six, look what he says here. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you or choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you are the fewest of all peoples. 
but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. The Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. Listen, God says, I didn't choose you because you were great. I didn't choose you because you were awesome. I chose to set my love on you. In the same way that the New Testament says, Romans 9, 22, 23, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to endure with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to show the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, even us, whom he also called not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. Like 1 John 3 says, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son. Number five, God's love for his people is an eternal love. It's a love that began even before you were made. It's a love that was set on you in the past. And it's a love that the Bible says will continue into the future, the ages and eons of eternity to come. Number six, God's love is a sacrificial love. God does not love you simply to indulge himself. God has sacrificed on our behalf, Jesus modeling this, when he bent down and washed the apostles' feet, but then ultimately in dying for the beloved. How do you measure the magnitude of love? You measure it by the willingness to sacrifice. You measure by the, what the lover is willing to give in order to bring the good to the beloved. God has loved us in a way that is astounding. Well, there's a lot more that we could mention about God's love and it would be helpful. For instance, God's love is a holy love. We need to know that. But this is God's love for you in Christ. It's totally based on his glory and not yours. But let's come back to Romans 5 here and finish out this verse here. Second sub point, it'll go faster than the first one. Verse 5, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. What does that part mean about that has come through the Holy Spirit who was given to us? Well, one of the things that we'll look at next week is this, the Holy Spirit of God given to the Christian. He is the dispenser of of God's gifts to his people. So in other words, God, there are, there are uh, many, many gifts, a multitude of gifts that God is giving to his people. They come to us by the work of the spirit in our hearts. And then this second part here, this is a love that is meant to be experienced in our hearts. So we need to get this part. So please listen in close. It's possible for you to be loved by someone, but not know it. It's possible for somebody to love you, but you don't recognize it, maybe even don't believe it. A Christian can go through a season, maybe of some doubt and the slew of despond and feel unloved, but that's not true. The justified Christian is loved by God, 
But what verse five is saying is that God wants us to know in our hearts that we are loved. Now, verses six through eight, if you, if you look at those, what is, what is that doing? That's referencing what God has done, the objective reality that he has demonstrated his love for you in Christ. But what verse five is talking about is us knowing it, experiencing it, comprehending it, getting it, being comforted by it, feeling it, and that that will further increase our joy, our hope, the strength of our hearts. So, so another way we can say it, verse five is talking about our subjective comprehension of the love of God. Some of the parts of this passage, verses one through 11, it's been teaching us objective facts. And then some of the other parts have been saying subjectively, here's how you should respond to those facts. Here's how you should comprehend these things. If you don't know what I mean by objective and subjective, here's, here's what I mean. Something that is objective is a fact and it really doesn't matter how you feel about it. Two plus two equals four. That is objective fact. It's not opinion. Verse one, if you look back to there, teaches you an objective fact. Justified Christian, you are at peace with God. Doesn't matter how you feel about it. Even if you don't feel at peace with God, you are at peace with God. But other places in this, like the exult and the hope, the rejoicing, what that is saying is this, based on this subjective fact, here is how your heart should sing with confidence because of what God has done. Here is how we should respond to God. Here's what should be happening internally, in the soul, in the heart, based on what God has done. We got to be careful in this whole feelings and emotions thing. I don't have time to say a whole lot about it, but we got to be careful not to base your walk with God your religious experience, your worship. We gotta be careful not to base it on feelings. We oftentimes feel like wrongly. We're not supposed to feel the way that we're feeling. The charismatic movement is wrong in that they make everything about the experience and the emotion and how do I feel today? That's wrong. But listen, it is also error to go to the other side of cold theology where there's no worship in the heart, to, to, to think that how we feel and what we experience internally is irrelevant. Jonathan Edwards wrote a really helpful book on this subject called Religious Affections, and here's a quick quote from it. True religion largely consists in the affections, meaning a big part of how we live our walk with God, a big part of it is what is happening internally. Worship, love, joy, the call to compassion. All over the Bible, God commands us to have internal experiences. And at times, he tells us how to feel. And he says, go feel this. Now, the world often responds to that kind of thing of, well, that's not fair. You can't help how you feel. The Bible says you're wrong. You can. It ain't easy. It ain't easy. It's a war. It's a fight. 
It takes daily effort, sweat, in order to bring my heart to fight against the flesh and all the lust, cravings, passions that's going on there and to work to bring ourselves where our heart is in the place that it should be. But don't just pass this off and say, well, I can't help that kind of stuff. Jesus said true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. Friends, how we feel should be based on truth, should be based on objective realities. So here's what the passage is doing. Verses six through eight are telling you objective realities. Verse five is calling, here's how we should feel about this. Here's how we should respond. And the Holy Spirit is at work in you so that we will come to know it. So what's being said here is similar to some other places. Flip to Romans 8 real quick. Romans 8, look at verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. All right, so here's what's being said. Objective reality, you justified Christian, you are adopted by God. Even on the days you don't feel like it, you are adopted by God. But what is the Holy Spirit doing? He is testifying to our spirit. He is working inside of us so that our hearts can sing and cry out, Abba, Father. He is working to give assurance. He is working to bring joy. He is working so that we have joy and feel adopted because we are adopted. What is being said here is similar to Ephesians 3 in that prayer that is offered in verses 18 and 19. It is prayed that we Christians will come to know the height and depth and length and breadth of the love of God in Christ. It matters to God that you comprehend his love for you. It matters to God and it is a transforming thing when we come to comprehend the magnitude of his love for us. And once you start looking, this actually comes up in the New Testament quite a bit. 2 Thessalonians 3, 5, may the Lord direct you Direct your hearts into the love of God. He's not saying you're not loved now, but I hope one day you will be by God. No, justified Christian, you are loved. But may the Lord direct your heart so that you know that you are loved. Being deeply convinced and comprehending God's love for us is encouraging, it is strengthening, it is courage creating, It is zeal producing. It is boldness inspiring. It causes our hearts to sing with confidence. It causes us to come to an even greater place of obedience. It is a motivator on to greater sacrifice, effort, service, and obedience to God. If your understanding of the love of God leads you to be demotivated about obedience, you misunderstand the love of God. 
But if the love of God causes you to have a joy that then longs to obey him more, that's when we're getting it. That's when we're comprehending. Christian, God's love for you is not going to stop. It doesn't decrease when you fall. It doesn't change day by day on the whims of how we're doing that day. Now understand, we will please God to greater or lesser degrees, but his love for you, his commitment to you, it's constant. He is committed to love you, to you who are not in Christ, to you who have not turned to him. How you feel should be based on truth. The truth of where you are right now is you are not under the covenant love of God. Thank God you're still under his care. While you are alive, he still has given an invitation to you. He's sustaining your breath every moment. Every day that you're alive is an expression of his love for you. And he is inviting you to come and enter his covenant, eternal love. But you got to go to him like he says. Don't feel assurance based on anything the world says or you come up with that in the end, I'm sure he'll make it all okay. You are only okay in Christ. Respond to him. Let's pray. Oh Lord, please take your truths and make them to be fruitful. Please take your truths and cause them to grow. Um, Father, please, I pray, add your blessing to it. Cause us to be a people who live understanding that we are loved and I pray that it will inspire us on to great worship and obedience. Any hero, God, that's not yet right with you. Please, God, don't let them go another day without resisting you. Draw them to yourself. Have mercy on us, Lord. Please give us your blessing. We ask all this in Christ's name. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message titled, The Hope and Privilege of the Believer. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org. Thank you.